Amen. Wow, what great singing. Great special. Wow, I love those instruments. Beautifully played. Very worshipful. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I have an outline. It's in the copying machine, I think. It's run off, but it wasn't cut out and distributed. So you'll have to remember my three points. They're easy. And they're right out of the Bible, so we shouldn't have any problem. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Remember the Thessalonian church? It's just a baby church. It's an infant church. This church has been here over 40 years. Do you realize that? We have been on this corner over 40 years with the gospel and the word of God being preached Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night for 40-some years. Incredible. Do we have some responsibility to obey this? Yes, we do. The Thessalonian church, just a brand new church, maybe six months old. New believers called out of the world by God. They turned to God from pagan idols. They were worshiping Zeus and um, living out lustful pagan lives. They turned from all of that. They turned when they placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It brought about a radical change inside their heart that affected everything, and their outward behavior was clearly evidently different. So much so that Paul said, hey, I commend you. You were imitators of the apostles and the Lord Jesus. And then he says, you were an example to all the churches in Macedonia. You go to Macedonia, you you find a church that's a model church. It is the Thessalonians. What they were doing, their gathering together, their evangelism, their fellowship, their prayers, Paul said other churches could imitate your pattern and be be blessed of God. What a church. Then, in chapter 1, Paul says, your gospel, the gospel echoed, it trumpeted forth out of your church to people all over, all over that Middle Eastern region. We know why. They were a port city like Duluth is. They had the Via Ignatia, like we have I-35. People were coming and going, and the people in the church were busy, busy giving the gospel, sharing the good news of Jesus, and a traveler would come by. They would hear it. They would go on their way, and then they'd meet the Apostle Paul way down south in Athens or Corinth, and Paul would say, let me share with you the good news of Jesus, and they would say, oh, we already have heard it from the Thessalonians. We were just up there. Wouldn't it be great if somebody down in Iowa living off of I-35, maybe Boone, Iowa, or some city down there, and somebody goes to preach the gospel, and they're like, well, wait a minute. We were just up north in Duluth, and we heard it from those at Faith Baptist. I mean, that'd be kind of neat to have that kind of impact in our community. We can do it. We, we can have that impact in our own local community and have it spread worldwide. So then Paul commends them. But remember what I said last Sunday night? Paul went into prayer he, he, he went into prayer, and then he revealed the prayer in the writing. He said, Lord, I want three things for the Thessalonian church. Number one, I want their faith to increase. Remember, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So they needed to know more of the word of God. They needed to have a greater understanding of their Savior, and then their faith would increase. It's not that they had to believe harder. They didn't have to try harder or believe harder. But the, the more they knew about the Lord, the stronger confidence they would have in the Lord. They would have greater trust, confidence, and greater faith. So Paul prayed for their faith to increase. Secondly, he prayed for their love to abound. They were already loving. But listen, he said actually to two two groups. He says, I want your love to abound to one another. That's within the local church. And then he said, and to all. Those outside the church, they need to experience the love of Christ through us. So we need to love one another in a very special way in our church family. But we cannot forget to love the unsaved. 
You know, they are lost in sin. They are going to go to hell without the good news of Jesus being offered to them and received by faith. So we need to love the lost. We need to care about their soul. We need to weep for them and seek to reach them. So faith increase, love abound. And then Paul said, my third prayer, that holiness would be established in you. He wanted them to fulfill God's will of being sanctified. And Paul said, it's all about being holy. And now what he does in chapter 4 He starts with holiness, and he teaches them how to establish holiness. Then he explains how he wants their love to abound, and then he's going to help their faith increase. So he's going to take the three aspects of his prayer, and then in chapter 4, he's going to answer them. This morning, we found out how to be established in holiness, right? It's not that you need to learn any new truth. It is all right here in God's Word. Here it is. You want to be established in holiness? Abstain from sexual immorality. Don't do it. Avoid it. Stay away from it. Don't go there. Don't be tempted by it. Don't commit it. Don't look at it. Don't lust for it. Don't think about it. You abstain from sexual immorality. And you don't operate with the, the, the desires that, may, that lie in our sinful flesh. And remember how the Corinthians said it? The Corinthians said it this way. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. That was their big logo. It was great because they would say, hey, my stomach's a physical organ. Food satisfies a natural appetite of hunger, so there's nothing wrong with food. When I eat it, it goes to my stomach. I feel better. It's not sinful. So therefore, sexual desires are just a natural appetite, just like hunger. And so since I have a physical body, I can just do whatever I want with it, and it's no big deal. Paul said, no. This body that we have has been created by by the Lord It is a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, and God is going to raise this very body up from the dead. I don't want to to contaminate it or defile it with sexual immorality. So how do we get established in, in holiness? Abstain from sexual immorality. It's the will of God that we do that. Don't take advantage of one another. And remember, God is so serious about sexual sin, he will judge it. And we know it comes with all sorts of physical consequences on this planet. Well, that was this morning. He just taught them how and helped them establish holiness. Now you know what he does tonight? He's going to teach them how to cause love to abound. So let's talk about love abounding. And then next Sunday morning, we'll increase our faith by looking at the rapture. Take a look at your Bibles. Chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 9. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. All right, that's the text tonight. Let's pray, and then we'll search the scriptures. Father, thank you for this opportunity to consider our love first for one another and then our love for the lost, for the world, for those who are outside. I pray, Father, that you would stir up in us a heart of love that has been given to us through the Holy Spirit, but also through the demonstration of Jesus on the cross. May our love be that type of self-sacrificial, willing to give to the benefit of another type of love. May it ask for nothing in return. I pray, Father, that we would also seek to live right in this last world, that we would mind our own business and work with our own hands, that we would be looked upon 
with respect and favor by the unsaved world, that they would see a difference in us and they would desire that. They would want to be like Jesus. So I pray, Father, for our testimony as a church and as individuals and our love one for another. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. Amen. All right. My three points. Number one, love genuinely. Love genuinely. I want you to have tonight just a genuine love for the church, for one another, and then I want you to have a genuine love for the, for the world. Don't love the world, like the world system and the world culture. I'm not asking you to do that. But I am asking you to live in such a way that your lives will bring about honor and respect for the Savior. That's what we want, and that's what the text is going to identify. So in verse 9, let's take it, this first part, verses 9 and 10, love genuinely. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. Paul says, listen, you are already loving one another. I don't even need to fill up some more lines on a piece of paper for you or a piece of vellum or a piece of parchment. You don't have any need that I I need to tell you again. And by the way, for Faith Baptist tonight, look at me, you, you all. I don't need to tell you one more time, love one another. You've heard me say it for 17 years or so, and we've acted it out, we've lived it out, we've demonstrated it, but I'm going to tell you again, love one another, all right? Love one another. So Paul says, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. You see, somebody beat Paul to it. God beat Paul to the teaching of love one another. Here's how he did it. You know how it's it's God taught because when you're born again and the Holy Spirit dwells in you, he puts in you a love for the brethren. He gives you a love for brother, brother, brothers and sisters in Christ. If you don't have that, question your salvation. If you don't love the church, like not just love what you get out of it. You like the padded pews and you like the dinners and you like, it's not that. It's do you love the people? Do you love the church and you're willing to die for one another? If you don't, you should question whether you're saved or not because one of the evidences of being born again is you love the church. You love brothers and sisters in Christ. Back in Leviticus 19, verse 18, in the context of Leviticus 19, God is talking about how to treat our neighbors. So when we're plowing a field, when we're doing something, how do we treat one another? And in Leviticus 19, 18, God says, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's way back in Leviticus. Nobody had to have that top because it's been written in the scriptures. They could go back to it all the time. Love one another. Love love your neighbor as yourself. And that was the command that lasted for many, many years, right? Take your Bibles. Go with me to John 13. It changed right here. Look with me at John 13. It's the night in which the Lord was betrayed. He's going to be hanging on a cross within hours. He has just finished washing the disciples' feet. And in John chapter 13, verse 34... a new command. Now, it's not a new command like brand new. There's a new part to it. There's a new, it's a new command. He's going to take something from the Old Testament, love your neighbor as yourself, and he's now going to change it a little bit. So verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, the Lord says, that you love one another, not as yourself, but you love another one as, as how? As I have loved you. That's the new part. Listen, we're just not to love our neighbor as ourselves because we kind of do tend to love ourselves. We are to love one another as Jesus loved us. With the same sacrificial love that knew no cost when he went to the cross for us. Look, 
The cross is the demonstration of the depth of the love for us. Did Jesus love us when we were lovable? When we conformed to his um, standards and we were finally nice, nice people? No. Jesus, he loved us and he demonstrated his love for us while we were yet sinners without strength still in our sin. He did not wait for us to shape up and get right with him before he loved us. He demonstrated his love while we were still his greatest enemies. So if anybody in the church becomes your enemy and you are not willing to love to that depth, then we don't know the love of Christ. You agree? If we cannot love like that, then we haven't experienced that love from Jesus ourselves. So the new command is this, love one another as I have loved you. And he's going to prove it just in hours when he's hanging on the cross. Then he says this, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now that must have really impacted the Apostle John because he wrote that in his gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Take your Bibles, one more book. Go to 1 John, the letter of 1 John. Because I want to show you the rest of the text in 1 Thessalonians will fall right in place. But let's look at 1 John chapter 2. I'm asking you to evaluate your love, your behavior one toward another, the depth of your love, the depth of your sacrifice, the depth of your commitment to brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 John 2, verse 7. Brethren, John says this, I write no new commandment to you. I mean, he's, again, he's not going to give any new truth, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him. Meaning this type of love, agape love, is true. It was found in Jesus Christ when he went to the cross. And this same love is, not only demonstrated through Christ, but it's also in you. If you're a born-again believer, you have that love, that agape love for one another. It says this, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining, verse 9, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother, another believer, is in darkness until now. You say you love the Lord and you're walking in light, but if you don't love the church, if you don't unconditionally love one another, then you're in darkness. You're dead. It's like, you better check your salvation because is it real? I have people that say, yes, I know Jesus as my Savior, but there's absolutely no desire for his word, prayer. There's no desire for other believers to be in fellowship with or to be in public worship. There's just nothing. And I'm like, there's got to be something in your heart that would desire you or draw you to an assembly like this. So one of the evidences of our salvation is this new command to love one another as God has loved us. Verse 11. He who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going. So it is possible for somebody in the church to hate other believers, to despise them, and to be walking in darkness and to be stumbling. Go over to chapter 3, same book. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. I'm just showing you how before Paul writes to the Thessalonians, they had already learned these lessons. These were, these had, this was written down in Leviticus the Gospel of John, the, dem the demonstration of the cross, was right there for them. 1 John 3.10, In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. All right, you want to know who's, of the ch who's a child of the devil and who's a child of God? Here we go. 
The text will tell us, verse 10, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. You don't desire to live holy, you're not of God. You don't want to live holy, blameless lives, pure lives, undefiled from sin? Check your relationship with the Lord. And then the second thing, nor is he who does not love his brother. Righteous living and loving one another on the same plane when it comes to are you saved? Are you a believer? Verse 11, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that you should love one another, not as Cain who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. Now notice that. See the contrast? A child of the devil, Cain, he's of the wicked one. And what did he do? He slaughtered. It's the word in the Greek, to slaughter. He slaughtered his brother and buried him in the ground. Now, let's put this into practicality. In the church, if you don't love others unconditionally, If you can hold back forgiveness, if you can, whatever, whatever it might be that is creating issues that are um, not loving, if, if without the restraint of the Holy Spirit, you would want them murdered like Abel was murdered. You would take that seed of, I can't believe that, that, you know, I don't like this person. I don't want anything to do with this person. I never want to see them again. You would take that little seed And without restraint, you would actually slaughter them and bury them in the ground like Cain because that was Cain's response to his righteous brother. So we should love one another, but you don't do it as Cain, who was the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life. Here's how we know. Because we love the brethren. We love the brothers. It's just, a, it's just a test that you know Jesus as your Savior. He who does not love his brother abides in death. You're living in a, a state of death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You hate somebody in the, in the church, you could actually say you are a murderer because you would take that seed of hate, and if you could get away with it, you would kill them and bury their body. Well, let's move on to verse 16 quickly. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. This is how we know love. It's because Jesus died for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has, and here's the practical way of showing love, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? You have the resources, somebody has the need, and you withhold it, you shut your heart up. The Bible says you have no love of God in your heart. It doesn't abide in you. We're we're to not just love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Okay, just a quick side note. I wanted to finish this text tonight so we get to the rapture next Sunday morning. But let me, let me just, can I veer, veer off one thing? I'm just going to do a little rabbit trail. You guys, the Thessalonian, let's bring it back to the Thessalonian church. You want to know what they were like? They really loved one another and they loved the lost. They loved the world. They didn't just love each other. They loved all the believers in the Lord. Here's how I know it. First of all, the text will tell us that. They loved all of those in Macedonia. But we're not going to go there. Let me just tell you, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Here's the quick story. There was a famine in Jerusalem. 
a severe famine. Whatever was causing it, I don't know. But people were starving and dying. Little children, older people would die first, and then the younger people would begin to die because the famine was so severe. Now, Jerusalem to Thessalonica, oh, it's a long way away. Like, oh, you're talking over 1,500 miles. It's a, long, it's a long, long journey, either by land or by boat. Either way, it's going to take a long time to go from Jerusalem to Thessalonica. They're not next-door neighbors. They're like from us to, like, let's talk Florida or something. They're a long distance away. There's a great need in Jerusalem, and the Macedonians have their own problems, and the Thessalonians were dirt poor. They were so poor they didn't even have dirt. They were absolutely, the Bible says they were in deep poverty. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we get the story that Paul went to the churches and said, listen, church, there is a need in Jerusalem way down there, 1,500 miles away. People are starving to death. Your brothers and sisters who also believe in Jesus, they're dying because they don't have any food. If you could take an offering, we'll send an offering. Now, he gets to the Thessalonians, but they're so poor, he says, you don't have to give. I realize you guys are super poor, so you don't have to give. You know what the Thessalonians in Macedonia said? They said, Paul, we insist on giving. We will give to meet the needs of believers in Jerusalem. We'll never see them. We'll never have a dinner together. We'll never fellowship. We'll never get to know them or their children or grandchildren. We'll never have any contact on earth with them. They're too far away. But we will give out of our poverty with great joy. And you bring it right to them in Jerusalem and say it's from us. Now, is that, the def- is, that a def- is that an act of love? You bet it is. They, didn't have- they could have said, Paul, who cares about those people? We'll never see them. Let them die. That's not our problem. But no, Paul, and so Paul even, it appears in the text, if you read 2 Corinthians 8 carefully, it appears Paul said you don't have to give. But then he turns around and he says to the Corinthians, the Macedonians gave in the midst of deep trials and deep poverty, they gave liberally. They gave way more than they had, which to me means that they actually went maybe even into debt to give something to the, to the Jerusalem people. Maybe they said, hey, we don't have any money right now, but I'll work for you for three months if you give me my money ahead of time, and I'll give it to Jerusalem, and then I'll work for three months for you. You know, you already paid me, but I'll just... Who knows how they did it, but it was a tremendous act of love. I mean, it put the Corinthians to shame because the Corinthians had the money. They just didn't want to give. There was no love there. Do you see what I'm saying? So love is going to demonstrate itself in our church family. You're going to, you're going to either see it or you won't. You'll either know it's here or you don't. Do you agree? So Paul says to the Thessalonians, yes, you're doing great. You are loving one another, but do it even more. Abound more and more in it. Now let's go back to the text. We'll go to back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And now we'll just, with that background, take a look at verse 9 again. Love genuinely, but concerning brotherly love, verse 9, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. You already know it's in Leviticus, it's been changed by Jesus to love one another as Christ has loved us. And verse 10, and indeed you do so. You're actually doing it. You're living it out. You're, li- you're loving like Jesus. You're doing it toward, listen to this, all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. So Macedonia was quite a region. So it wasn't just their local town. It was a huge region. But we know from 2 Corinthians 8 that they even cared about Jerusalem saints 
Well, then he goes on. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. He just wanted them to excel at it and be better and better at loving one another. I'm going to challenge you. Go out of your way to love one another. When you see needs, you get there. You meet them. Whether it's some financial need, maybe it's a meal, maybe some hospitality, maybe it's a room. Whatever we have, we ought to be willing to give to one another. Especially as the persecution on the church comes, we're going to need that. When the government starts taking away our rights and our, 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 our freedoms of worship, we're going to need one another to step in and supply some of these needs. Well, that's the behavior we have one to another. Now, for the rest of the time, let's look at what's our behavior towards the world or towards the last. Verse 11. Here's our behavior. Oh, so my second one, work diligently. First point, love genuinely. Second one, work diligently. Here's what, okay, now again, I need to give you some background. Here's what I think is happening. You know what happened in Minneapolis with that death from that police officer, that, um, Castillo or something, and the last couple of evenings, there's been riots in the streets, right? They, like they blocked I-94 down there. Just, I mean, you're talking Minneapolis, St. Paul area. They blocked I-94. The police had to come um, with riot gear and throw, um, you know, just try to disperse the crowd, that type of thing. In the Roman Empire, the government was the authority. You, weren't, you could not go and ask for social change. They simply dictated what your life was going to be like. Right? So, the only way to go against the government in the Roman period was not, let's vote for another senator that'll vote our views. You couldn't do that. Uh, it was such a political scam and, and such a corrupt society. The only thing you could do is rebel. You could have a revolt. You could get everybody to, to band together and let's go against the government. I think what Paul is saying here is this. He's saying, I think there's a, a big picture that we, that we need to briefly look at. I think Paul is saying, first of all, you, you don't rise up and create riots and revolution and revolts against the government. Even Jesus didn't do that. Remember when he was before Pontius Pilate? He said, I'm not a king of this world. My kingdom's not. If my kingdom was of this world, yes, then I would fight with physical weapons. But it's not. It's a, it's a, it's a different kingdom that you're part of. So I think Paul is saying, don't rise up and revolt and create conflict. Because all that's going to do is make the Lord look bad. People aren't going to be able to get saved out of that. Here's why I say that. I'm not just saying that because it's my opinion. In Acts 17, you don't have to go there, but let me just read You can if you want, but I'm just going to read it to you. In Acts 17, Paul in Thessalonica, here's what happened. After he preached, there was a big revolt by the unsaved. By the way, when Paul comes out after preaching the gospel and there's a big mob that's against him, what could he have done? He could have said, all right, every believer on my side, grab a club, grab a sword, grab, let's get a weapon and let's fight these guys. Let's battle them in the marketplace. He doesn't. Instead, here's what happens. When they, um, when they couldn't find Paul, he, he left. He didn't continue on with the mob or battling the mob. He simply departed. It says this, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city and they cried out, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another King Jesus. They were saying there's another King Jesus, but they were not going against the decree of Caesar. If Caesar said pay taxes, they had to pay taxes. They had to be subject to the governing authorities. Do you see what I'm saying? So I think maybe some in the church thought, 
hey, you know what? We're believers in Jesus. We're of a different kingdom. Let's go against the political system and let's, let's make a riot. Let's make a revolt. I mean, look at the people that are making the riots. You know, we don't look at them favorably. We think, well, what are they doing? You know, we understand why they're doing it. But so Paul was so concerned for the testimony of the church. There is a second part to it, too. Paul had been teaching about the coming of the Lord, and he said the Lord's coming is imminent. He could come at any time. So the church got confused thinking, if he's going to come at any time, let's quit working and wait. If he's going to be here by next Tuesday, I'm not going to finish my week of work. You get the idea. So people just were not working. They stopped working, and here they are. They're idle. They're busybodies. Now they're disrupting society. Now they're beginning to cause issues. And Paul's like, well, wait a minute. Don't go there. Your testimony before the unsaved is critical. You want people to come to Jesus as uh, their Savior? Your testimony is going to play a huge part in that. Now, with that background, let's look at the text. Verse 11. Work diligently. Love genuinely. Secondly, work diligently. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life. That's it. Lead a quiet life. We're not taking up arms and rebelling against the world. We're preaching the gospel. We're, fo- we're forceful about it. We're bold about proclaiming the gospel. We're not shy. We're going to create conflict, but we're not doing it deliberately. We're not going to get a big mass revolt, and we're going to get weapons and stand before a city hall and demand an audience. No, we're going to preach the gospel to the people in our neighborhood, people at work. We're going to just, but our goal is we're just going to lead a quiet life. We're not going to be disruptive. Lead a quiet life. And then second, the second part of working diligently is mind your own business. Just keep to yourself. We're not meddling in everybody's business, trying to find out all the details and stirring everybody up and dividing. And No, we're leading a quiet life. We're minding our, our own business. We're not causing conflict and bringing up problems. We're just taking care of our things. We're preaching the gospel the whole time. We don't ever waver on that. We preach the gospel that offends people and all of that, but we're minding our business. We're leading a quiet life, and then we're working with our own hands. We're doing something. We're productive citizens. We're contributing to society. We're buying goods, and we're doing this, and we're making goods, and we're selling goods. We're doing something with our own hand. We're earning an income. We can support our own family. We can support the ministry of the local church. We can support churches in Jerusalem. I mean, there's all sorts of... So we're going to work diligently... Work with our hands. We're not going to be dependent on people. Listen, when the church, a lot of people, when I go and do business for the church, because I have to do business for the church in our community, I always, they, some people will say, well, oh, you're a church. I suppose you're going to want a discount or something. They, that's one of the first things that come out of people's mouth. And I always say, nope, this is your business. You're a private uh, business owner. If, if this is your price, don't try to cut us a deal because we're a church. We will pay whatever price you ask for this good or this service. We're not trying. Do I want the best deal? Yes. Do I want to save money? Yes. As a matter of fact, CenturyLink, our internet service, um, they gave me a little piece of paper in the mail, and it, um, it said $5 off your next phone bill. Or your, and I thought, hmm, five, okay, I'm going to do it. So I called the company, and I said, no gimmicks. And I called, and they're like, well, you know, I said, we're a church, but I still would like my $5 off. It was offered, trying to save money for the church. And she said, oh, I'm looking at your contract. And at the end of July, it goes up. It almost doubles. The price of our phone and Internet service would double. And she said, you know what we could do? She said, right now, we're offering a, offering a special promotion. It's way better than $5 off one bill. And she um, is giving us 
uh, the same rate that we have for another whole year. And I was like, wow, praise the Lord. I mean, I didn't ask for it. She gave it to me. So I, I wouldn't call and say, hey, we're a church and we demand special attention. We want special privileges because we're a church. Give us, no. You know what? We have to show a good testimony to the last. We don't want people to think that we're grubby, greedy people that need money, money, money. So it's mind your own business, lead a quiet life, work with your own hands. And Paul had already taught them that. He's just reminding them, you want to demonstrate love to the world? Be respectful, be proper men and women. And then my last point, live intentionally. Love genuinely one another, increase more and more. Work diligently so we have a good testimony before the last. They need to see people who believe in Jesus are hard workers. They're faithful. They're responsible. We don't cheat. We don't steal. We're honest. People need to see that. And then thirdly, we need to live intentionally. Here's the goal, verse 12, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside. You know who those are outside? They are the lost. Paul says it is very important how you live before the last world. We need to live intentionally. Everything we do reflects the Lord Jesus Christ to the world. And either you are a missionary going out with the gospel or you're a mission field and you need people to work with you with the gospel, right? So we're going out as missionaries into a mission field and where do we walk in properly? This word properly, it's the idea to win the respect of the unsaved. We don't compromise. We don't give in and just let them accept us. But we live in such a way that they will respect us for how we behave. Like at the school, uh, during uh, any period, you know, sometimes the teachers will get around and they'll start telling some pretty awful jokes or bad. And, and I'll be like, hmm, I don't want to listen to that. You know, it's not that I'm disdaining them. I'm simply saying, you know what? I choose not to partake that. I don't want to look like that. I don't want to live like that. I don't want to talk like that. I don't want to laugh like that about those things. And I'm different. And I hope as a result, they have a respect. They know that what I believe is actually the way I'm going to, I'm going to choose to live. And hopefully that'll garner some respect and it'll give me a platform for the gospel. So then when I talk to them about Jesus Christ, then they're like, well, yes, I guess we have seen evidence of your pattern of speech and your behavior, and, and you actually win favor with the lost. So Paul says, the reason we love one another genuinely and we work diligently is that the, the, the lost people will, will respect the Lord. They'll give respect to him because they see him in our lives. So we live intentionally. By the way, it is intentional. You, you, if you choose not to, to be intentional in your, in your decisions, you will end up wandering far from the Lord. You've got to choose to be godly. You don't drift into godliness. You t and I've said this many times. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and without any intention just be godly. It doesn't happen that way. You have to choose. Today, I'm going to live for the Lord. I'm going to fill my mind with thoughts of Scripture. I'm going to do right. I'm going to speak right. I'm going to share the gospel. So we walk properly toward those who are outside. And then the last thing, we don't take advantage of other people so that we may that we may lack nothing, it literally means that we're not taking advantage of anybody. We're not trying to scam them. We're not showing some type of deceit. We don't want to lack anything regarding um, our lives. Um, we're not going to take advantage. 
We're going to work hard for the things that we have. We're going to give generously to others who don't. And um, we're not going to take advantage of this world. We're going to love them and preach the gospel to them and hope they get saved. Make sense? So how do we, okay, how do we establish holiness? Abstain from sexual immorality. Every form of it. How do you abound in love? You love genuinely one another, just like Jesus loved us. Full love like that. And we love the last. How do we love the world? We love the world by minding our own business, working diligently with our own hands, and being generous in, in our giving and proper in our behavior. And it's very intentional. So tomorrow, this week, watch what you do. Watch what you say. People are watching you. Oh, I can't even tell you. I pump gas. Like if I go to Sam's Club for gas or I'm up here at Super America, I'll pump gas. And then like a day or two later, somebody will say, oh, Pastor Wita or Mr. Wita, I saw you at the gas station. Oh, I saw you um, go at Subway getting a sandwich or something. And I'm like, people are watching me all the time. They, it's, seriously, my life, I feel like I'm in a fishbowl. They are watching my attitude. My, can you imagine how quickly we can ruin our testimony? I wrote something in my Bible that I'll never forget. And um, it's on this side. Here it is, right where I thought. Listen to this. You may, in order to help yourself, do in five minutes what you cannot undo in 50 years, and you may bring upon yourself a lifelong series of trials by one single unbelieving act. Right? In one unbelieving act, one act of the flesh, I could undo in like five minutes what I've been a believer now for 23 years, 23 years of serving the Lord, I could do something that would take five minutes and I could undo everything that, is, that I've, I've sought to do for the Lord by one unbelieving act. Walk properly before the church. Walk properly before the world. Remember, this world needs salvation. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together in the text. What a great book this is. First um, Thessalonians, an incredible church. But they were being admonished to be established in holiness. They had to abstain from sexual immorality, keep um, that only for marriage. They could have no other influences in their life that would corrupt them. And Father, also, they had to abound in love. They had to love one another genuinely, just as Jesus did. And not only their own church, but other churches, all in Macedonia. And then towards the last, they had to walk properly so that they could be respected in the community. They weren't seeking to overthrow or to rebel or to revolt. They were leading quiet, humble lives, but they were proclaiming the gospel the whole time, and, and they impacted the whole world. That's what we want. We want people in our workplace to see us as godly believers. They want, we want people to see that our allegiance is to Jesus Christ alone. So help us to do that. Help us to live like that, and we praise you, and thank you for the impact of this church. This week at Bible Camp, help our young people to grow spiritually. Next weekend for the big outreaches, boy, I pray people in our community will come into this church building. They will see the church worshiping, and they will desire to love Jesus. And maybe some men or women or boys or girls will be saved. That's what we pray, what we pray for. So thank you, Father, for working in this church. To your honor and glory, amen.